0: Easter. I uh, am glad that today is Easter, but I am saddened and even, I'll say, discouraged that I am speaking to an empty room. And it saddens me, because this is not the way that a church building usually looks on Easter Sunday. Well... I couldn't bring myself to preach to that big empty auditorium. Preaching to a camera is hard enough. Preaching to an empty auditorium is maybe even harder. And I know that I have changed my background and my setting these past several weeks. And I will just say, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) I'll fully admit it, that this is very new ground for me. As I know it's new ground for you, you're not used to trying to participate with a worship service through your television screen, and I am definitely not used to trying to present a sermon to a camera. And so I thought I would come back to the library for this lesson, and I thought I would use this table, and I am, like you, trying to make the best of a not perfect situation, trying to do what I can in the midst of... Like I said, discouragement. And I wanted to actually share with you this morning a story of a man who met discouragement. This man lived in the 1800s in the second half of the 19th century. He was an entrepreneur. He was a businessman trying to get his business up off the ground. And he found a technology he thought he could build his business around. It was called a lithograph machine. And that lithograph machine was an 1800s version of a modern copier. Abraham Lincoln was running for president. And this man thought, well, if I can print off enough pictures of this man, then his supporters, those on his campaign trail, will buy them so that they can distribute them. Because pictures were not easy to come by in the 1800s. So he used his lithograph machine and printed copies and copies and copies, ready to sell and distribute them to Abraham Lincoln's supporters. But when it came time to actually put his plan into action, by that time a little girl had written a letter to Abraham Lincoln and told him that his face was too thin and gaunt and that he should grow a beard. Abraham Lincoln famously obliged and grew his beard, but that made all of this particular man's pictures worthless. So he had spent a lot of time, effort, and money trying to start this business for naught. And that is a discouragement. And this man's name was Milton Bradley. He then thought, what can I do with this lithograph machine? It was a recession. It were The years leading up to the Civil War and the country was not in a great state economically. And there weren't, wasn't a lot of people just knocking on his door, beating down his door for business. He had to come up with a way to use his investment or he would potentially lose it all. And so we hit on the idea of a board game. Something that wasn't very common back in the 1860s. There were some, but he decided he wanted to use his lithograph machine for something. So he came up with a game called the Checkered Game of Life. This game was unique in a few aspects. One, this game did not use any dice or any cards. If you think back to the 1800s, America was still largely under the influence of its Puritan heritage. And those Puritan-minded people and their Puritan-minded families wanted nothing to do with dice. They wanted nothing to do with the devil's games. And by and large, most people rejected the idea of games at all. They thought games were a waste of time. You needed to work hard. You needed to do fruitful things and deliberate things. Things like read your Bible. Things like study, things like do your chores, and those chores were extensive back then, and so there wasn't a lot of time for idle game, and what time there was, the parents and the teachers would encourage their students to use the time not doing something silly like playing a game. Well, Milton Bradley knew that, and he had grown up with that heritage as well, and so he made his game, The Checkered Game of Life, and that game was about morals. It didn't have dice. Instead, that game had a spinning top kind of thing, where it would land on the side and show a number. And that game also was played on a board, a lot like a checkerboard, but you would progress up this board, something maybe akin to a game you're familiar with, chutes and ladders, and you would get points. Points for good things. Points for things like honor. Points for things like success, you would uh, be rewarded for bravery, you would be rewarded for ambition. There's even a spot on here, I'm not sure what it refers to, but it says fat office. And I don't know what a fat office would look like, but I think it's a little bit humorous. I guess it was a sign of the times. And there are things on here like wealth as well, but his goal in this game is not to hoard wealth. The goal of this game is to reach the final square, happy old age. And when the player reached happy old age with a point total of a hundred points, he won the game. And this game spread like wildfire. Parents loved it, families loved it. A game that taught good morals and strong work ethic and the things that the Puritan heritage valued. And Milton Bradley hit on a business that became, for a while at least, his was the largest maker of games in the world. Well, a 100 years after Milton Bradley made his famous checkered game of life, the company Milton Bradley wanted to celebrate and honor its 100th anniversary by making a new game of life. And that game of life is the one we're used to, the one where the entire goal is to accumulate wealth. And I find it ironic that Milton Bradley, whose focus was on morals and focus was on a good life well lived with ethics and honor, well his company a hundred years later just made a game about making money. A game that embraced the materialistic culture of America. So he embraced the Puritan culture of his day and a hundred years later his successors embraced the uh, materialistic culture That was just starting in the 1960s, and of course now is still going strong. And you can buy the game of life now, the new game of life, and it's changed just since the 1960s in some ways. But the emphasis is still on how much money can you have whenever you enter the good old age of retirement home and will you move into the mansion worth millions? So the question I want to ask you this morning is, which one is the right one? Was it Milton Bradley's original game, which focused on morals and honor and ethics, and the uh, pursuit of a good and life well-lived and happy old age? Or is it the new game of life, the one all about money, the one all about big houses and fast cars? Which one is the game of life that we should live? Because, well, people have been questioning the meaning of life for a long time. Wondering, what is the meaning of life? What is the one thing in life we should go after? And I would say that there's a problem with both of those games. I would maybe prefer Milton Bradley's original game more than the current money-driven one of today, but even his game has a problem. You see, there's a problem in what happens after the game. In the original game, it was happy old age. In the new game, it's retirement. But there's something that comes after that. The game is incomplete. There's something that comes after that that the book of Ecclesiastes actually shows us. And I want to read it for you now. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So I was far wealthier than all my predecessors in Jerusalem. Yet I maintained my objectivity. I did not restrain myself from getting whatever I wanted. I did not deny myself anything that would bring me pleasure. So all my accomplishments gave me joy. This was my reward for all my effort. That sounds like the new game of life. That sounds like he was getting rich, building big houses, getting all the things that luxury can afford. Yet, verse 11, and it's a big yet. He says, Yet, when I reflected on everything I had accomplished, and on all the effort that I I had expended to accomplish it, I concluded... All these achievements and possessions are ultimately profitless. Like chasing the wind. There is nothing gained from them on the earth. And when he reached his end destination, when he had all the wealth he could enjoy, he said, it didn't do anything for me. It accomplished me nothing. Why? Well, because he knows something. He knows that he's not at the end of the game yet. He knows that there's something yet to happen. And he goes on to that in verse 12. Next I decided to consider wisdom, as well as foolish behavior and ideas. And when the Bible talks about wisdom, it's strongly talking about ethics. Wisdom is not just an intellectual pursuit. Wisdom is a a life well lived, much like Milton Bradley's original game. How you can pursue honor and the things that are permanent and meaningful and good, rather than just the things that are easy or fun. And he says... I decided to consider wisdom as well as foolish behavior and ideas, for, all, for what more can the king's successors do than what the king has already done? But again, he realizes something. I realize that wisdom is preferable to folly, just as light is preferable to darkness. He would say Milton's Bradley game is better because the wise man can see where he is going, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet, the same exact yet, From over in the previous passage comes up again. Yet, I also realized that the same fate happens to them both. He realized that the square not on the board, that nobody wants to talk about, but is sitting there as your final destination regardless is death. One day, you will die. One day, this game of life will be over. And on that square, money doesn't count. On that square, even honor and prestige and success and hard work doesn't count. Even something as good as wisdom, the wisdom that makes a life well-lived, you're still dead. So I thought to myself, verse 15, "...the fate of the fool will happen even to me. Then why did I, Then what did I gain by becoming so excessively wise?" So I lamented to myself. The benefits of wisdom are ultimately meaningless. For the wise man, like the fool, will not be remembered for very long. Because in the days to come, both will already have been forgotten. Alas, the wise man dies just like the fool. So I loathe my life. Because what happens on earth seems awful to me. For all the benefits of wisdom are futile, like chasing the wind now i have to admit this is probably not the peppiest easter sermon you've heard at least not yet i hope that you'll stick with me until we do get to the good part but for now i think we have to realize in our game of life we cannot win that at the end we lose because death awaits us death awaits you death awaits me, death awaits us all. Regardless of how that death may come, we are not going to get out of this world alive. And so how do we play the game of life if, that, if, if it's meaningless, as Ecclesiastes says, if it's, if it's vanity of vanities? How can we play this game if the end doesn't change? If there's no way to overcome, if there's no way to win? Well, you have to cheat. And I realize that might be just as surprising, or maybe more surprising, than my message last week about being cutthroat, but if you want to win in this life, you cannot win on your own. You have to cheat. And I will say that whereas Milton Bradley's game emphasized honor and good and truthfulness and respect, and that would look down on cheating, Even the new game would look down on cheating. You read scripture itself. And scripture says, we've got a cheater on our side. Somebody who doesn't play by the rules. Somebody not bound to the rules because, as a matter of fact, he wrote them. He made the rules. And he steps in, and it's not fair. It's not fair at all. I hear sometimes my kids, just like most kids, it's, it's not fair. And I said the same thing when I was a kid, and sometimes I still say the same thing now. And usually the parental response is, life isn't fair, and that's true, but here's the thing, it's not fair, it's better. When it comes down to it, if the game of life were fair, we would all die, and stay dead, and have no hope of eternal life. But we do because somebody cheated. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. So God took the one who was in sin, but put him in the place of sin. Made him receive the consequences of sin. And that's not fair. That's not playing by the rules. That's not how life is supposed to be. That, that's, not, that's not in the cards, so to speak. You're supposed to pay your own debts. You're supposed to face your own consequences. And because of that, the game of life had us. The game of life had us backed into a corner, nowhere to go, only facing our own loss, our own demise. And yet, God cheated God beat the game of life, the game he created. And so I guess you could say he was at all. He can make the rules. He is the creator. But as far as our perspective, he changed the game. The game changer. Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us. So that in him, we would become the righteousness of God. I'm not the righteousness of God. I'm far from it. And yet God has made me his righteousness through the sanctifying sacrifice of Jesus who took on our sins. And not only that, let's look at Colossians. Another cheater's verse. Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 says he has destroyed what was against us. A certificate of indebtedness. If you're anything like me, you know a thing or two about debt. You know about a mortgage, you know about car payments, you know about school loans. And debt is something that just hangs over your head. And some have more debt than others, and sometimes you almost feel like it's going to suffocate you because you feel like there's no way out. It controls you. It has you. It's got you exactly where it wants you, and there's nothing you can do about it except keep Spinning your wheels, trying to get ahead, and really getting ahead is not what debt was made for. And Scripture tells us about debt. That we have a certificate of indebtedness against us. And that certificate of indebtedness is, you sinned, you deserve death. You were indebted with your life to sin because you have succumbed to the temptations of sin. But He, Jesus has destroyed what was against us. This certificate of indebtedness. This document that we signed. We signed by our transgression and our rebellion and our sin. We put our name on the line saying that we would serve this document of indebtedness. And Satan had us. Had us exactly where he wanted us. And yet, again, God broke the rules. God changed the game. God cheated on our behalf by taking that certificate of indebtedness expressed in decrees opposed to us by the law, the good law which God gave us, but showed us just how much we mess up, showed us just how much we sin, showed us just how far we have fallen. So a constant reminder of our inadequacy, of our failure and of the idea that we can't win. He has taken that certificate away by nailing it to the cross. Jesus was nailed to the cross, but it's almost like, uh, maybe this is a bad illustration, but a bait and switch. Jesus was on that cross, but instead of him being the one that was defeated and torn apart and, of course, killed permanently, which he was not, Instead, by the fact that he was willing to take sin upon himself, he took away, he nailed to the cross, he destroyed our indebtedness to sin. Our indebtedness, which had us going for only one destination, death. But again, it gets even better. Because on the third day, after dying on the cross, something really cheating happened. You see, there's a rule in this life, in the game of life, so to speak. In the real life world we live in, there's a rule. The dead dead stay dead. And everyone abides by that rule. Now, there's a few instances of Scripture where that rule was broken, Old Testament and New Testament. But they were by far the exception, and, of course, many people without faith don't believe in those stories anyway. Not like we do. But in those instances, we could say that in those moments, God raised people up from the dead to prove His power over death. But with Jesus, something was a little bit different. A lot different. With Jesus, it wasn't just so much somebody coming back from the dead because God summoned them, or God brought them back from the dead. It was God Himself raising back up from the dead. Because... The power inherent in Jesus is the power inherent in the Father. And that power cannot be held down by death. That power cannot be defeated. And that's cheating when it comes to playing a game. If your power is so great that you cannot be defeated, then everybody else has the right to say, Cheater! Or can say, or often does say, Cheater! But God made the game. God made the rules. And he came to this world and broke those rules that we were so used to living by and said, watch this. Watch this. And on that Sunday morning, that stone was rolled away. On that Sunday morning, Jesus came out of that tomb. On that Sunday morning, death was defeated completely. And the resurrection became powerfully real. And it gets even better, because not only is the power of the resurrection in Jesus himself, because he is God-made man, the power of the resurrection is in us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, talking about the incomparable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So it's not just God's power, it's his power toward us who believe as displayed in the exercise of his immense strength. God proved his power. God proved his ability to overcome. The power, this power, your translation might say the very same power. He exercised in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So the power that He gives us, the power available to us, the power that God used toward us, verse 19, is the very same power that raised Christ from the dead. So if God can raise Christ from the dead, if Christ can raise Himself because He is God made man, God come in flesh, the Son of God, by His own power, He lays down his life and he takes it up again, like he says in the Gospel of John. If that power is available to Jesus, if that power is inherently in Jesus, then we who have the Spirit of Christ, we who have the Holy Spirit of God within us, as Ephesians has just finished talking about, that power is in us. That just as Christ cheated death, now we can cheat death. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Now if Christ is being preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Something's going on in the church in Corinth. Uh, people saying that, uh, you know, we like all this Christian stuff. Well, we, we like you guys talking about how to live good lives and treat each other well. I mean, good teachings. We, we like that sort of thing, but this resurrection thing? The idea that somebody can come back from the dead? I don't know about you, but I've never seen that. We have a long timeline of human history where people who die stay dead. It's the way of things. It's the rules that you have to follow in this game that we play. This game that all ends at this final destination of death. And... So they were saying, there's not really a resurrection. And that makes Paul mad, I believe. In chapter 15, he's saying, how in the world can you believe that? Because Christ raised from the dead. That that is the key foundation, cornerstone of our faith. The fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. And if Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of God... Then you were raised from the dead by the power of God. And just as you were raised from the dead by the power of God, so Jesus is raised. And Paul goes both ways here in chapter 15, verses 12 and following. He's saying, just as we know that the resurrection is waiting for us, Jesus proved it when he rose from the grave. So it's intertwined. Jesus' resurrection is directly connected to our resurrection. You can't take them apart as sure and as significant and as true as one is is as true as the other and so that is what our faith is built upon we struggle sometimes with belief even as a preacher sometimes i do i read things in scripture that seem crazy and i have to ask myself well who's the one in charge Who's the one that decides what's crazy or not crazy? Who's the one who writes the rules? And if that is God, then I should trust what his word says. Even though it might sound strange, but the strangest part of all. And sometimes we lose this. Sometimes we talk so much about the resurrection of Jesus that we forget just how strange this claim is. you can cheat death. This world death and taxes. The two things you can't cheat. Well, some people have cheated taxes and death is quite a bit more final than even taxes. But somebody cheated death and and didn't just cheat death for himself. He cheated death for you and he cheated death for me. He made it so that we could win the game we had no chance of winning. He cheated for us by laying down his life so that we could have life. And by conquering death through his resurrection, so that death can no longer have a hold on us. Well, I wanted to come back in here to close out. And I will say that this big empty room is still discouraging. But like the story of Milton Bradley, discouragement isn't the end of the story. That whatever discouragements we may face, whether it's on Easter or any other day of the year, any other day of our life in this game of life of the play, we will face discouragement. I promise you that. Don't let any preacher or any other person tell you otherwise. Whether you're a Christian or not, you will face discouragement. And discouragement can get you down. Discouragement can... Make this game of life, the journey, the journey that we're on, difficult. But we've already won. But we've already cheated, or more accurately, God has cheated on our behalf so that we can have a victory we don't deserve. And I wanted to come back in in here to reinforce that, and I also wanted to come back in here because the beautiful. Wonderful thing that we have in baptism. Whenever we put Christ on, whenever we accept His wonderful, precious gift, His salvation for us, whenever we cheat death. And the thing is, Jesus cheated death because He was willing to die. He died on the cross when He didn't have to and thereby overcame death because of the power of his purity and holiness and the character of who he was and, of course, the power inherent in his divine nature. But the whole reason he was able to conquer death is because he was willing to die. And we go down into the waters because we're willing to die. We we go down into the waters to die, to put our old self to death. But that's not the end of the story. In that moment, we cheat death. We say, death, you no longer have a hold on me. And we rise to walk in newness of life. That is what we celebrate. On Easter, on every Lord's Day that we come together, or maybe have to sit in our homes. That's what we celebrate every day of our life. Because the thing is, Success, winning the game of life is not dependent upon how many church services you attend. The reason why we uh, attend church services, the reason why we gather with uh, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is precisely because we've already won. And we're not doing that right now, and oh, it aches to not be together on Easter, especially and it's eight every week and every however many more weeks this will continue. I hope it goes away soon. Because we're meant to celebrate together. We're meant to celebrate death. You don't have us. We have life. Because God gave us life when we deserve death. And His power which raised Jesus from the dead raises us. And to close there is a beautiful verse. And so many beautiful verses. But there's one I want to leave you with. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Especially the second half. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. We have victory on our side. We don't fear death. We don't fear anything. Because we've already won the game. Good morning, church family.
1: It's so good to be with you again on this Lord's Day. Again, we're enjoying our study and our worship together in our own homes. Still faced with the uh, seriousness of the circumstances we're in, being separated because of this virus. And the fact that we can come together this way and be a part of each other's lives and share in the message that Kobe shared this morning about living life. And then we are able to come together, to join together, to participate in the partaking of the Lord's Supper. There are followers of Jesus around the world in every country that are celebrating this Lord's Day, as a time when the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is remembered. We as Christians celebrate that every Lord's Day. As he commanded for us to come together on the first day of the week and to remember this, that as often as we eat it together, we commemorate and remember his sacrifice that was given to us by dying on the cross. I wanna share a few passages with you this morning before we take part. In this feast in John chapter 13 in John chapter 13 the first three verses Jesus is about to eat the Passover with his disciples and before he sat down with them he had this to say now before the feast of the passover jesus knowing that his hour had come and that he should depart out of this world to the father having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end and during supper the devil having already put into the heart of judas iscariot the son of simon to betray him jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hands And that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. You see, in that statement, Jesus knew that the work he had come to do on this earth was about to be finished, that he would be put to death, and that he would shed his blood to cover the sins of all mankind. But he knew that he would be returning to God. And that's a joy that each one of us as Christians celebrate today as we join in this communion with him, knowing that as the child of God, that the price Jesus paid gives us a home with God forever. Jesus offered some words of encouragement to his disciples before he was arrested and put, taken to be crucified. In John chapter 16, beginning with verse 32, Jesus said, Behold, an hour is coming, and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone, and yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world." So here, just as we're scattered in our own homes today, as Jesus was talking about them, we have this opportunity to share in the Lord's Supper. I want to share another passage in John chapter 19, beginning in verse 17. This is where Jesus was led to the cross. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him with two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. And Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. Therefore this inscription many of the Jews read for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. In verse 26, it says that when Jesus therefore saw his mother and that his disciple whom he loved standing nearby, He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. And after this, Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there And so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You notice how many times that John recorded that Jesus said, I know, I know. He was very confident and that he would be going home to be with his father when this was all over. Let us join together now in prayer as we take the bread that Jesus broke. Dear God and our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the, the joy that we share in being your children. We come to you today especially thankful for Jesus, for the life that he lived on earth, for the sacrifice that he made, for the torture that he went through as he was put to death on the cross. God, I pray that as we partake of this, that we reflect on that sacrifice, but also we reflect on our own lives and how we live with you. What life is really about as we belong to you and walk our life as a child of God. Be with us as we take of this bread which represents the body of Christ. Amen. Let's continue in our prayer. Dear God, we come to you again and just are thankful for being your children. We're thankful for the blessings that you give us and we pray blessings upon us as we are separated at this time from the physical presence, but we're thankful for being able to be in each other's homes with the methods we're using today. I pray you be with us as we drink this fruit of the vine that represents the blood of Jesus that he poured out on the cross so that all mankind could be forgiven of their sins. For the things I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I pray that this morning's worship with Kobe and uh, our thoughts have been with you each and every day. I pray that you're taking advantage of the opportunities that we share uh, with the media that we're going through. I pray God's blessings be upon you.
0: Thank you for this time of sharing together. Good morning. I hope that
2: you and your family, or whoever you're worshiping with this morning is having a great worship time together. I hope that you've enjoyed your spiritual feeding this morning. Even though we can't be together in body, we can be together in spirit. First of all, I wanted to tell everyone how much we as leaders in the church appreciate your diligence in getting your contributions in. March, even though the last half of March we weren't together, we still had contributions that were just slightly below normal for the month which I'm, I'm very excited about that fact and I'm, I'm really proud of everyone for being diligent and making sure they get their contributions in because we do still have to uh, continue paying the bills for the operation of the, the Lord's work in Winsboro and paying our ministers who are doing a great job during this time apart and we want to thank them for all the work that they've done thank Colby even though it's very difficult uh, for him not to be here He's done a great job so far in putting together some information that we can feed on uh, with the lesson, and we just appreciate all their hard work and KT for all the work he's done transitioning into this time. I wanted to do this outside because I think about, even though Easter is not mentioned in the scripture, it's typically associated with Jesus' resurrection, and the, day, the time after Jesus was raised from the dead that the tomb was found empty. Going to John chapter 20. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and this is Mary, and did not know what it that it was Jesus. She, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir... If you have carried him away, tell me where you you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. And if we go on over to further in that chapter, uh, verse 19. The disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So I just think about this time after the resurrection, and Mary was so distraught. She was so upset, I'm sure, by all this and trying to deal with it. And Jesus came to her and comforted her. And then the disciples, and he came and said to them two different times, peace be with you, and then again, peace to you. And why would Jesus greet them this way? You know, in today's time with what we're struggling with, I think it's important to remember that we need to remember peace. Jesus brought peace. God brings peace to us. We should display that peace in our lives to others and show them that we have this peace of God The peace that Jesus Christ sent to us, through our Father, through Him, to us, to live in peace, feel at peace, even when times are difficult. So I wish now to you, peace to you, the peace of God be with you during these difficult times. We will be back together again. The Holy Spirit is guiding us through this time, I believe, and putting us together in spirit. And I hope that you have a great week and a great Easter. And this is a time of new beginnings It's spring. And let's enjoy our family. Let's enjoy our time together as family, with our families. God bless all of you until we see each other again and have a great week.